Well, it's great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we're winding up this series, Walk Like Jesus, but it doesn't mean that we stop walking like Jesus. The series is just a way to remind us that this is our role as disciples. And so if you're a guest today, we're glad you're here. We invite you to come back whenever you can. And if you're worshiping with us online, we're grateful that you have joined us on SLCC.TV as well. I thought our kids did an awesome job this morning. If... Uh, <clears throat> If we lived with the same energy with which they sang, we'd make a difference in this world. The knowledge of mathematics is essential to our everyday lives because we use math in multiple ways every day. And while I'm grateful that technology has made math quick and easy, like having a calculator on my cell phone, I'm also convinced that technology has weakened our mental math skills. I learned how to count out change, uh, working retail back in high school. And I've noticed if I go to buy something today and I'm a little slow in getting the pennies out of my pocket to round off the purchase, you know what I mean? And they've already punched in the numbers into the cash register. Those two extra pennies just throw chaos at the checkout. Um, I keep waiting for sirens to go off and for management to come out and say there's a problem in lane number four. You got a troublemaker there with two extra pennies. We've, we've lost certain abilities because of the technology. Um, it, it, you know, it's easy to figure out the square root uh, if you've got a calculator. Can you still do it with pencil and paper and, and maybe a slide rule? By the way, did you know the slide rule was invented by a preacher? That has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted you to know <laughs> that preachers can do other things besides just preach. If you lose your GPS signal, can you still figure your route, distance, and ETA from a AAA folded up map in your pocket on the side of the car? Perhaps you can. Now, following a map doesn't always mean you're going to get there. I've made some real blunders with a map. You just ask my family, <laughs> and they'll tell you I've gotten lost with a map. But if you lose your GPS, some people just, they have no idea where they are. Do you still balance your checkbook, or do you just trust that your online banking is correct? Now, let's, t let's take a look at a few pictures and see if you can identify these things, all right? Here we go. Anybody know what that is? Abacus, Abacus right. What's that? An adding machine. Yeah, you just punch in the numbers and pull the lever. All right. Slide rule, very good. Protractor, yeah, excellent. Compass, very good. And a T-square, excellent, used in mechanical drafting. I think that may be all. You did really well on the math quiz this morning, but we don't use those things very often anymore. Names like Euclid, Archimedes, Chiam, and of course Pythagoras dot the pages of mathematical history. Evidence of more complex mathematics does not appear until around the year 3000 BC when the Babylonians and the Egyptians began to use math, algebra, and geometry, first and foremost, to figure taxes. They also used it for building and construction as well as astronomy. And everyone approaches math from a slightly different perspective. For instance, I really, I enjoyed geometry. Wasn't so keen on algebra, but I really enjoyed geometry. In my senior year, I took aeronautics for my senior class. There's a lot of different ones. You may be a genius at mathematical physics, calculus, or trigonometry, but there's one area of mathematics that every one of us in this room ought to agree that we should be proficient at. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I'm going to suggest this is the Lord's favorite form of mathematics. 
multiplication. John Wesley said, he said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw, whether they be clergymen or laymen, such alone will make the gate, shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God on earth. 100 people with passion, 100 kids with passion can change the world through multiplication. Last week, we explored how Jesus invested in a few, those few being 12, and then the three, and then one-on-one. He poured into each of them with special energy, and over time, those that he poured into multiplied and changed the world. We're here this morning, 2,000 years later, because of what they did. So let me, let me remind you again of what the apostles did. And since science tells us that we only remember 7% of what we hear, On the outside chance that what I said last week falls into the 93% vacuum, let me just remind you about what the apostles did. These men worked, wrote, served, and died together in the name of Christ. Any person, you see, they give credibility to what we believe is scripture. Any one person could write or preach a falsehood, but if there are others who are eyewitnesses that are still alive, they would inevitably set the record straight. For instance, I could write a book about the the gang of thugs that started the fire at the church building back in that September morning in 1991 and destroyed the church building down the road on Winslow Road. But there are enough eyewitnesses left in this congregation who'd call me out on that. We don't have a clue what started the fire in the church building back in 1991. So if I'd write a book about a gang who did it, there'd be people who'd say, that's not true. That's false. You can't write that. That's not accurate. If Matthew had written something false about Jesus, don't you think the other guys would have called him out on it? And besides them, there were hundreds, even thousands of people who knew Jesus and knew what Jesus had done and knew what Jesus had said. So if Matthew had written it wrong, they would have corrected it. And if they hadn't corrected it, the early church would not have embraced it. So when you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John writing from different perspectives at slightly different times, from different personalities, but telling the same story, It gives credibility. Those eyewitnesses make all the difference in the world. I've often thought it sad that all of the apostles, 10 of the 11 that were left after Judas took his life, died martyr's death. I mean, I've thought, Lord, couldn't couldn't you have let these guys live? I mean, after all, they'd spent three years with Jesus. Couldn't they have just lived? But I've come to the conclusion that their deaths were not in vain, of course, but that their deaths also were for our benefit in a unique way. The very fact that these men all died because of their faith in the resurrection gives validity to the message that they preached. They firmly believed it to be true. And I guarantee you that none of them would have died for what they knew to be a lie. Had they stolen the body, had they hidden the body, had they done something with the body, they would have known it was a lie. They all died for what they believed was true and what they preached. And where they died, points out how far the gospel had gone. Now, James was the first to die. He died in Jerusalem at the hand of King Herod. But from there on, history tells us, and tradition tells us the rest of the story. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Bartholomew was flayed to death in Armenia. James the Less was buried in Spain. Matthew was cut down by the sword in Ethiopia. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome because he did not feel he was worthy to be crucified like his Lord. 
Philip was hanged on a pillar in Turkey. Simon the assassin was sawn in two in Egypt. Thaddeus was martyred in Armenia. Thomas was pierced with a lance in India. Matthias, the one chosen to take Judas Iscariot's place, was both stoned and beheaded in Turkey. And the apostle Paul, who comes later, was beheaded in Rome. And John, the only apostle not to die a martyr's death, but who was banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his faith, living on this deserted island, died an old man, but suffered as well for his faith. These traditions, based on history and legend, are, 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 give us an insight into how far the gospel went to multiply. But all historians do agree on this, that the apostles gave their lives for what they believed and what they preached. And by their efforts and their martyrdom, the church has multiplied over and over and over again through the last 2,000 years. Now, since the birth of our country, I know of no one martyred for their faith here in America. But Around the world, today, there are more people dying for their Christian faith than at any other time in history. This week, I was reminded again of how what's happening to the church in China becomes more and more and more oppressive. You pray for our brothers and sisters in China. You pray that God opens up the door for them despite the oppression that continues to mount just because they are believers in Jesus Christ. And if there are those around the world who are willing to die for their faith, shouldn't we be willing to live for our faith with the same passion, commitment, and multiplication? Now, if you want to know the secret to multiplication, Jesus gives us a clue in John chapter 15. So let me read this for you. You can follow along on the screen. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You, already know clean, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday. The wonderful beginning of the awful last week of our Lord's earthly life. Later in this week, when Jesus gave to his apostles what we celebrated a few minutes ago and what we call the Lord's Supper, he used this analogy. John 15 is on that night about the grapevine. Now, I think Jesus could have easily used a wheat field or a barley field because after all, I mean, there is... There is great multiplication from that. If you take a single grain of wheat and plant it in the ground, the, the stalk produces over 300-fold on one stalk, what that tiny one grain. That's pretty good multiplication. But there is a difference between what we find in the vine and what we find in vegetables or the wheat field. I, I think this is significant. With few exceptions, vegetables and grains are annuals. Planted every year. Fruit, on the other hand, is most often the product of a perennial. 
A plant that keeps coming back and producing year after year after year, sometimes for decades. That's the kind of multiplication Jesus is trying to communicate. This isn't a one-time shot. This is a perennial effort on our parts. And so he uses the vine. And the analogy is significant in other ways too. The vine has been cultivated in Palestine from, from the earliest of times because of the climate and, uh, and the hillsides that make it perfect for a vine. The work of the vineyard thrives best under peaceful conditions because it's a lot of work. It, it's my understanding that at least at this day and time, work in a vineyard was harder than work in a field because it demanded so much care. There was constant pruning of the vines to make sure that the clusters of grapes ripened to full maturity. And if you were going to build a vineyard, you'd have to clear the field. You use the rocks to build the watchtower and the vats. And the family would live in the watchtower during the harvest season because they had to protect the field from the foxes and the jackals. And so between July and October, the vines were producing. The main harvest was in September. And they would harvest. And you ate a lot of grapes during that time of the year. But you made raisins as well that would get through the winter. You boiled down the grape juice into what was called grape honey. And it too was used through the rest of the year. So the harvest of the grapevine was incredibly important to the life of the Israelites. God had special regulations on Hebrew vineyards as well. You could not harvest the corners of your vineyard. And if grapes fell in the process of your harvesting, you left them on the ground because in the evenings, the poor of the community who didn't have other resources would come in and they would reap from the corners of the field and they would pick up the grapes that had fallen to the, to the ground. Every seven years, the vineyard was to be left fallow. And no other seeds were to be planted in the vineyard, so nothing would cross-pollinate with the vine and destroy its purity. There are some pretty good lessons right there in that simple part. Help the poor. Get some rest. Don't compromise your purity or your integrity. And the vine had such significance in Israel because throughout the Old Testament, God referred to the Israelites as his vineyard. As a matter of fact, it became the symbol of Israel. What the bald eagle and the stars and stripes are to us as Americans, the vine was to the Israelites. The Jewish coins of the Maccabean area had the vine embossed on the coins. And one of the glories of the ancient temple was the great golden grape vine that graced the front of the holy place. And it was considered a great honor if you had enough gold that you could give to make one grape to add to the cluster. So when Jesus said his, to his disciples, I am the true vine, it must have stopped them in their tracks. Jesus didn't say Israel's the true vine. He said, I am the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You must remain in me. We live in a day and time when a lot of people are disconnected. The problem of loneliness continues to grow around the world. There are many who feel unplugged and disconnected in families, in jobs, careers, friendships, and the, and the list goes on. Jesus reminded his closest associates that being connected to him was being connected to the source of life. So let me remind you of all the connections you have in this life. One takes priority over the rest. Because if you're not connected to him, you're not connected to the source of life. Now, in this passage, Jesus gives us some truths that we want to focus in on for just a couple minutes. The first one is this, the gardener prunes. Jesus said every Every branch gets pruned at some point. And in this analogy, Jesus identifies God is the gardener. 
He prunes the good branches so they produce more fruit, cuts off the dead fruitless branches that are draining the vine of energy and resources, and then builds a fire for the dead wood to be destroyed. Vine wood is worthless. The only thing it's good for is building a fire. And so when something appears to be lush and green, the idea of cutting it back is a little hard. Elsie can tell you, I have a hard time. If, if something really looks good, I think, well, wh why mess with it? It looks really nice. But I've learned over the years that if I will trim and prune the bush, it'll come back better and fuller and greener and richer because there's just something about pruning that makes all kinds of a difference. This is from a Purdue University Cooperative Extension Service Bulletin. Pruning is the most important cultural practice in the management of grapevines. Grapevines require annual pruning to remain productive and manageable. So here's the, here's the deal. If there's things that are happening in your life where you feel God is doing a little bit of pruning, a little bit of cutting, a little bit of pain, it may be because he knows you can do more. You can do better. I can do more. I can do better. And while pruning is not pleasant, here's the good news. It, it says there's life in the vine and that God cares enough to make me better than I am. I suspect we all need some pruning. Does God need to cut away some of the dead wood habits and fruitless practices that are keeping us from being as spiritually productive as we could be? Do you uh, sometimes have a sour grapes attitude that needs a little pruning? Is your service in the kingdom wilting on the vine because you're distracted by too many other things in life? Perhaps your faith needs a new challenge so that you don't become apathetic and start to coast through your spiritual life. If you're connected to the vine, you will be pruned, but despite the pain, it indicates that God's working in you. And that's good news. And here's something else. The, the vine provides. Yeah, the gardener prunes, but the vine provides. Jesus is the vine. We're just the branch. And look at all that Jesus provides. He is the source of life. Now, if you're running an electrical appliance or an electrical tool in your shop and suddenly the power goes out, first thing you should do is turn around and see if it's still plugged into the outlet, right? Any elementary child can tell you it won't work if it's not plugged in. You, you got to be plugged into the source of life. You don't have to understand the difference between AC and DC current. You don't have to understand how Duke Energy produces our electricity to understand this simple principle. You got to be plugged in or it won't run. You can't cut off a branch and expect that branch to live. You can't cut off a bud and expect it to bloom. You can't cut off unripened fruit and expect it to mature and grow. When anything is disconnected from the source of life, it begins to die and decay. Jesus is the vine. Stay connected. He provides life. He's also the source of our ability to produce. I'm telling you, it's difficult to follow a leader who says, go do this, but doesn't give you any means to do this. A true leader shows you how to do the job, equips you with the authority to do, to do the job, and provides resources to accomplish the job. Jesus hasn't asked us to do anything that he hasn't already taught us how to do. When he sent out the 72 to go share the gospel story, he told them where to go, what to take, how to respond to the people there, and when to come back. He gave them all the instructions and the resources to accomplish the job well. Plus, he's modeled for us. How to live our life connected to the vine. Here's something else. He's the source of our success. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. When we live and serve in our own strength, 
We may make meager progress and give the appearance of success, but it is not lasting. Author Dallas Willard advocated a new system of measuring our success. He said, pastors need to redefine success. The popular model of success involves the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Instead of counting Christians, we need to weigh them. Now, don't panic. All right? Just, just hear him out. We weigh them by focusing on the most important kind of growth. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, and so on. Fruit in keeping with the gospel and the kingdom. Can I remind you this morning that Jesus called us to bear fruit. And when you go to the grocery store, fruit is not purchased by the piece. It's weighed by the pound or the ounce. Understand his point? If we're producing fruit, we ought to weigh the difference that we see. Not just those outward things that we as oftentimes call success. Mark Twain wrote this. He said, there are a thousand excuses for failure, but never a good reason. God calls us to be fruitful. And there's no excuse why we can't be. And he's the source of our opportunities. If we're connected to the vine, it is inevitable that the vine will branch out and seek every opportunity. So don't lose heart if at first you feel like your efforts are ineffective. Stay the course and let the Lord lead in his good time. We've been encouraging you over the last year and a half to find a one life, somebody that you want to pour your life into, and hopefully through that relationship and friendship, they'll come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And you, you may not have found that person. Or in your efforts to open up that door, you, you may not have been able to do it. You may feel like you're failing in your effort. But success, the opportunity you've been waiting for, may be just around the corner. Don't give up. Some things take a little bit longer than we imagine. But God is at work providing the opportunity. Back in 2004, NASA landed two golf cart-sized rovers on the planet Mars to give as much research as possible of the condition of Mars and the terrain and all that kind of good stuff. These, these rovers were designed to last three months and to collect as much information as they could in that three months. February the 13th of this year, of this year, NASA announced that the last of the two rovers had died. Fifth years later that rover covered an unprecedented 28 miles of Mars surface sending back all kinds of information for NASA to work with from a science standpoint designed to last three months it kept going for 15 years that's a pretty good bang for the buck do you know what the name of that rover was opportunity before they sent it into space, they plastered the name Opportunity on that rover. I'm telling you, God is going to give you opportunity after opportunity if you stay the course and don't give up. Now, why, have all, why is all this important? Because time is short. And, and we can't just keep putting off and putting off and putting off what we know we need to do. If we're going to walk with Jesus, and if we're going to walk like Jesus, then we need to be multiplying for Jesus. Uh, Major League Baseball first day was just about two weeks ago, give or take. But this year, there is something unique about our Major League Baseball teams. Of the 30 teams and the 25 players on each roster, are you ready for this? There is not a single active player left who started playing in the 20th century. That just sounds kind of unbelievable to me. All of the teams, all of the players 
are new in the 21st century. I, I tell you, time is flying by like I can't believe. Time is short. There's a lot to be done. The kingdom needs to expand its horizons. God is calling us to be multipliers. There's life only in Jesus, and today we need to multiply our efforts to share his eternal story of grace. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.